Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and waitress who's not really a waitress, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor and freelance one who is three, three who are one, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about 24-7, episode five from Netflix's The Sandman, season one. 24-7 was written by Ameni Rosa and directed by Jamie Childs. The trouble with stories is, if you keep them going long enough... They all end in death. Time to wake up. In 24-7, we open with Matthew the Raven in the storage locker with Dream on the floor, begging Dream to get up. John D. walks into a 24-hour diner and chats with Bette, a waitress with serious Annie McDowell vibes. He flashes his ruby, says he dreams of a more honest world, and orders a cup of coffee. She goes to make his coffee and chats with Lindy, the cook, who's about to finish her shift when Marsh, the night cook, comes in. Bette goes to the bathroom to freshen her makeup in anticipation of Marsh's arrival. A young woman named Judy walks in, anxious about meeting her girlfriend, Donna, after a fight they had the night before. Bette goes in to see Marsh, using gossip about Judy and Donna as an excuse to talk to him. He's not interested in either bet or the gossip. A young man named Mark walks in, killing time before his interview in the neighborhood. Bet sits him next to Judy, who moves to a booth and makes it clear she is not interested. Kate and Gary, a couple that Bet set up five years ago, walk in and Bet rushes over, gushing over their anniversary. Gary asks about Bet's son Bernard and about her writing, but she changes the subject to their order. Kate orders spinach salads while Gary salivates over a burger, and the passive-aggressive Olympics begin between them over his food choices. Coincidentally, Kate is the CEO of the company Mark is about to interview with. Bette checks in with John, who has been quietly watching, and they talk about Bette's writing. She calls him handsome, and holding his glowing ruby, he asks if she really thinks he's handsome. She says no, of course not. And when he asks her why she lied, she tells the truth. She wanted him to like her. He says he likes this version of her much better and says they're going to change the world, make it a more honest one. As the day wears on, tensions increase. Kate and Gary argue. Judy wonders if her phone messages are getting to Donna, and Mark says her phone is fine. Donna just doesn't want to talk to her. Judy stomps off and tries to leave the diner, but stops at the door, then turns around and sits down again. John asks Judy if she's all right. She says she doesn't think she is. Kate and Gary go to leave, but also stop at the front door. They seem to forget that they just ate, and when Bette greets them, they turn around and go back to their booth. They loop their arguments from earlier, but this time with more venom. Bette introduces Mark, and Kate offers to conduct the interview right there. Bette goes to the kitchen to invite Marsh to dinner. He says he's not interested in Bette. He only comes over because he likes to have sex with her son, Bernard. The night gets darker. A storm rages outside. Gary and Marsh have sex in the kitchen. Kate and Mark have sex in the booth. Judy and Bette make out in the hallway. John eats ice cream and watches, his red ruby glowing. Gary attacks Mark for having sex with Kate, and in the scuffle, Mark stabs Gary in the neck and kills him. Bette realizes it's John doing this to them, and he says that all he did was make them honest. They did the rest. He suggests that maybe they enjoy their suffering. As he talks, we see shots of Bette burning the pages of her novel, Mark hammering nails into his hand, Judy slicing the tattoo off her arm in the bathroom, Marsh cutting off his fingers with a cleaver. 
Bette wanders through the dead bodies and asks John how this is a better world, and he tells her she needs to close her eyes. She takes two ice picks and jams them through her eyes and says, I see the future. And on the floor of the storage locker, Dream opens his eyes. In the diner, Bette, Judy, and Kate channel the three and give John his future. He will crush the Dream Lord's life in his hands. Morpheus walks in and confronts John, demanding the ruby back. John refuses, and Morpheus shifts them into the dreaming, where John dreams of his mother trying to kill him. He realizes it's all a dream, and his mother disappears, and he's in Morpheus's mansion, which is burning down around him and Morpheus. John attacks Morpheus with the ruby and crushes it in his hands as Morpheus writhes on the ground. John thinks for a moment that he's killed Morpheus, but as we pull out, we see that John is tiny, standing on Morpheus's palm as Morpheus explains that by crushing the ruby, John released Morpheus's life force back to him, and instead of destroying him, he saved him. Morpheus returns John to the asylum and puts him to sleep in his cell. Outside on the street, surrounded by ashes and flame, Matthew asks if Morpheus can fix what the ruby did. But Morpheus says the ruby didn't do this. This was done by people. And tomorrow, the rebuilding will begin. All right, Elisa. So um, this story was intense when we did it in the comics. And it is also intense now. What did you think of 24-7? Okay, first of all, uh, the serious anti-McDowell vibes line from your, from your, I love that. <laughs> I, the minute you said it, I thought, yes, it's, it's so true. There's, mm -hmm. that has this warmth and, and vulnerability. Yeah. But anyway, this episode, first of all, um, I learned from Neil, actually, he said, you, you know, that I could, I could just pass it off as if I'd recognized it on my own, making me right. seem that much smarter. But no, guys, full disclosure, <laughs> just, just, I don't need no stinking Ruby to make me honest. Um, <laughs> so uh, anyway, this episode covers mm -hmm. the territory of two issues of the Sandman comic, 24 Hours, which is issue six, and issue seven, which I think is called The Sound and the Fury a book I never got along with in English class. But that's a different, I, just too much truthiness. Anyway, <laughs> this episode takes a slightly different angle of approach than the comics. And to my eye or to my ear, it's a slightly more intimate and less detached, less ironic approach. Mm -hmm. But it covers the same thematic territory. And in the end, it takes us through horror, as the comics do, and into a place of empathy. But now I want to ask how you feel, because I know as we were texting each other back and forth, I was putting out fires and you were, you were sort of, oy vey, this is the stuff I find very challenging, uh, but I'm going to get to it. It is horror is really difficult for me to engage with. And that doesn't mean it's not great. You know, it's just that like, for me, there is something about horror. There's some, there's a couple of, of, of times during the season in which I'm going to have this struggle where um, something in me just kind of shuts down and it makes it a little more difficult for me to really think critically. I just engage with it the way that it is uh, thinking about it too much. I find like gets a little even more disturbing, um, but I do really like that. Um, you know, this episode finishes the story arc of the season. We opened with a quest for Morpheus to get his sand helm and Ruby back and we end with that quest completed. So I really like that. 
Um, it was tough when we discuss it in the comics. And when you told me that, you know, Neil had called and told you that it was the two issues, I was like, was it really? But we had actually, that was back when we were doing two issues per one episode of Endless. And so I had just merged them together in my head as one story. But absolutely, yes, it is. It is two. We have the 24 hours in the diner. And then we have the the battle between John and Morpheus um, as, as Morpheus is trying to, you know, undo whatever damage he can. Um, and so in this episode, I, you know, I really liked the thematic questions about the, the essential, um, you know, moral, uh, you know, standing of always telling the truth. Like honesty is supposed to be moral and lying is supposed to be amoral, but we're seeing that gray area in between. And of course, any virtue taken to excess can be a vice, you know, so I really kind of like um, that they're playing with that thematically. Um, and I honestly like, you know, did I enjoy this episode? No, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I didn't enjoy watching it. Um, although I, I actually, in some ways I did because it's really good. Like, yeah. because the quality of it is good because the way in which they're really building this, the theme into it. And also because we are, like you said, running through horror to get to a place of empathy, that the horror is not just there for, you know, shock value and you know to to make us cringe and all of that that there are thematic things going on here that there's something deeper going on here and that is really when i think you know personally horror is at its best so you know it's yes it's a struggle for me but i think we're gonna have fun talking about it i I think so too and i i was thinking that i i don't know if i've ever told you my theory of the two kinds of music that people like that Mm -hmm. some people want music that expresses the angst in their soul and these yeah. people listen to heavy metal or opera um, or, you know, punk, or hard rock. Um, Country music, sure. <laughs> and and then there are people who want to soothe the, the mm-hmm. angst in their soul. And they listen to, you know, Olivia Newton-John singing Have You Never Been Mellow <laughs> and some, <laughs> some 70s. There's a lot of easy listening in there. And I myself, I really love angsty, angsty lyrics with really beautiful harmonies. That is my sweet spot. Wow. You know, it's funny because I really like um, bouncy, happy music. I have been accused of being a snaps and claps kind of music listener, that if there is a song <laughs> where somebody is clapping or somebody is is snapping, uh, then I am generally going to like it. So I tend to be like a bouncy person. I always gravitate toward the light side. Um, I think possibly because there's enough angst in my soul already. <laughs> Absolutely. And and that, you know, has me thinking, I, I go back and forth these days between watching Sandman and mm-hmm. watching Love Boat reruns, which my close, I've now, I, I don't know if I've mentioned that on the show before. A lot mm-hmm. of my my close friends know my Love Boat obsession. And it's because yeah. I, my life is somewhat stressful right now. I do need some rice pudding. And, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and, and there's also the kitsch factor. But this this kind of brought me to wanting to talk about Bet and horror versus romance because yeah. I have a lot of Bet feelings and I bet you do too because yes. no pun intended. Well, of course, um, <laughs> because Bet is well. First of all, okay, so we spent a long time visually at the beginning of this episode, really close up with Bet's gorgeous face. I mean, she is such mm-hmm. a beautiful woman. 
Yes. And we mm-hmm. see all her nervous anticipation at, at, you know, having Marsh come again. And this is, to my mind, sort of the visual equivalent of the close third POV that starts the comic. You know, mm-hmm. where we start with, they look at her and they just see a waitress. They don't know that she's nursing a secret, a secret that keeps her aching calf muscles and her coffee scalded fingers and her weariness from dragging her down. So, you know, this her secret is that she's a novelist. There is, I think, a little bit more of a sense of ironic detachment in, in we are aware that Beth's mm-hmm. wanting everything to have a happy ending is, is not something that, that perhaps makes her, um, what, what is, I don't know how to say this in the comic. I think the fact that mm-hmm. Beth is so attached to providing happy endings for people that is not necessarily close to reality that feels to me a little bit like an indictment on romance. And I feel Mm -hmm. with this episode that we are taking a different approach to her, that we are Mm -hmm. coming at her, you know, with, with more of a feeling of there's actually a point to happy endings. And just, just randomly somebody tweeted an excerpt from a Jenny Cruzy essay about romance Oh, so uh-huh. I, I, I was going to quote this. So this is the quote of why Jenny Cruzy said she wrote romance back in 99. Mm-hmm. Because the world is full of cynical, sophisticated, seductive people who will tell you that only a romantic, and when did that word get to be so pejorative, would believe in love and connection, that the world is a cold, cruel, heartless place, and that happy endings are unrealistic and ultimately harmful. And I think these people are snot-nosed jackasses, and it is my God-given duty to thwart and annoy them at every turn. You know, I don't think that there is a Jenny Cruzy quote that doesn't lighten my soul when I hear it. She is so wonderful. I love her so much. Yeah, um, I, I absolutely love that. I love that defense of romance. And I do think that, Bet in this um, episode, we are seeing, you know, she says, I want to give everyone happy endings. Um, you know, and then, and then he, of course, brings up like, if you run that, that's because you, you end the story at the right time. If you let the story go long enough, all the, everything ends in death, you know? And, um, and yeah, that's kind of a slap to the face, but at the same time, you know, here we have Bet who is embracing life and embracing the moment. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that the bet that we, the way we view Bet in this episode versus the way we view Bet in, uh, in the original comic definitely has a different tenor to it. And she's a different kind of middle-aged. Watching The Love Boat, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been really, I've been noticing, you'll see an actress that- I love this comparison, yes. Okay, so I was a kid and I'm watching (laughs) The Love Boat and I would see all these Mm -hmm. old people that had been movie stars in the 50s. And now I go back and I think, how old are you, old person? And it always turns Mm -hmm. out that the woman is, you know, in her early 50s or late 40s and she's paired up on the love boat with a guy in the 70s. But mm-hmm. anyway, I'm <laughs> I'm a little distracted here. The bet that is a middle-aged waitress in the comic mm-hmm. looks a little more middle-aged. I think we see mm-hmm. Bet here and she she doesn't look like she's in her 20s, but she looks mm-hmm. beautiful and desirable and Andy McDowell-esque. Right. And I, Andy McDowell-esque, yes. But mm-hmm. I don't think it's because, you know, there's that TV thing of everyone must be beautiful. <laughs> right. That, that cabaret mm-hmm. moment. Even the band is beautiful. But 
mm-hmm. I think this is more about uh, perhaps a slightly different view of what middle-aged, that not every middle-aged woman has to wear the Estelle Getty wig from the Golden Girls. Exactly. <laughs> you get it in the mail as soon as you turn 45. I mean, I have mine in the closet. <laughs> I, I I like to wear mine when I'm accessing the crone part of my oracle. There you go. Um, yes. But anyway, to go back to Bet, um, one of the changes from the comic to the TV episode is that uh, in the TV episode, Marsh and Bernard, spoiler alert for those of you, I... Why would you listen to this if you haven't watched the episode? Shut. If you haven't watched it and you're listening to this, clearly we're spoiling the episode. Shut, so, yeah. shut this down. <laughs> go watch the episode. Come back. Okay. So um, Marsh and, and Bernard have been having the thing, as we say. Mm-hmm. But it's consensual. It's clear they've been – it is a consensual relationship, whereas yeah. you know, in, mm-hmm. in the comic, it's in prison. We don't know exactly what happened. Um, there is there's a hint. There is a sense that – that Marsh, you know, um, assaulted Bernard in prison, as opposed to here where it's consensual, which is much, much easier, a much easier moment. It's still tough, you know, for Bet, um, but it's not the uh, it's not the kind of assault victimization that we see hinted at in the comics. Yes, absolutely. And I so two other changes. Well, I don't know. This one isn't a change. I realized that when Marsh tells his truth, because we're all about truth here and how much truth right. you tell, mm-hmm. he says, you don't want me. You're just bored and lonely. Well, I look at Bet's face and I think that's your truth, but that's not yeah. the truth. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do feel that Bet um, convinced herself or believes that she's in love with him. There's this mm-hmm. great quote I remember from somewhere um, about love is thus an ally of precious metal and some less pure, half love, half lie, half belief, half make oneself believe. Oh, neat. And I don't remember who said it. Uh, <laughs> it might be William Reich. Anyway, the, the idea here is yeah. that mm-hmm. even if she's deluding herself into believing in this love as she deludes herself into believing everything, you know, she's got this special sense of who belongs together, it's still right. part mm-hmm. of her belief system and then there is something, though, that, that shifts. I don't think in the comic, in the comic, it feels more like everyone's under mind control when they start having sex. And I don't know if that's right. accurate or not. Here, the moment where Bet and Judy uh, come together sexually, intimately, mm-hmm. romantically, I get the feeling like, oh, that's what was underneath you're too good for Donna and you could have any man you want. And that she, Mm -hmm. that she didn't see that a same sex liaison was an option perhaps initially. And then Mm -hmm. being able to be honest with herself, she could. And that makes her character, I think more sympathetic to me at least than the version in the comic. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, my understanding from uh, friends I have spoken to is that like a lot of people grow up with this sense of compulsory, you know, heterosexuality, where that is the only option that they feel is available to them. And sometimes they don't even realize, you know, that they have other things that they would like to be because it doesn't appear to them as an option. And so one of the things that's, you know, again, like the, the, there's the truth, there's my truth, there's objective truth, there's what I believe to be true. These are all different shades on truth. 
Um, and, and none of them are necessarily the whole and complete truth because every whole and complete truth is incredibly complicated and probably self-contradictory, you know? Um, but I liked that moment between, uh, Bette and Judy, cause I really did get a sense, even in the comics that, that Bette's complaint was because she kind of had a thing for Judy, you know? And as the time went by, like it, that wasn't sort of how it worked out, um, in the comics but i like sort of seeing that you know that ball played through on this green you know um which has really been uh kind of interesting what a great way to put it i that and every part of the pig i i'm really liking that <laughs> even though i don't eat pork and i don't play golf oh you know what uh i don't play golf either but you know every now and again you just pull out a metaphor and run with it um but i do like this um i really loved the use of honesty that john comes into this space saying, I just want to make an honest world. And when that, you know, quote unquote, honest world, again, whose truth is the truth is always a question here. Um, you know, when that turns to horror, um, you can kind of see that like he knew exactly where it was going to go. And that was exactly what he was after. And that the horror is not shocking to him as he goes and fetches his ice cream to just sort of watch the television, the television, which is also showing that the horror is not limited to this diner. Like this stuff, there's all sorts of disasters going on in the outside world as well. Yes. And actually I noticed on my second watch of the show mm -hmm. that we clearly are starting with a lie where the news says, well, there's been this terrible collision of trucks and uh, one of them was containing hazardous waste. Uh, luckily, nothing spilled, but that road is closed. And then we come back to the news and they're saying, mm -hmm. again, don't go down that road. So, you know, it it reminds us of all the ways in which lying, you know, mm -hmm. comes in. And it got me thinking about I, I'm sorry, I'm going to get a little political here, but I, I, there was this moment early in the pandemic when we were told, you don't need masks. And mm -hmm. the funny thing is I ordered masks because I wrote a plague book um, back in the 90s. That I wrote a destiny book um, where I was, yeah. I was pregnant. I became obsessed with first uh, the bubonic plague and then Ebola, and then I wrote about mm -hmm. it. And so I spent a lot of time reading books like The Hot Zone, and I thought, mm -hmm. well, surely a mask couldn't hurt. And, right, exactly. You know, <laughs> it was going to hurt. It was yeah. kind of like a lambskin condom. I know, I know, they don't really protect <laughs> against anything, but it seems to me if that's your only option, put on the sheepy. Yeah, why not? Right, exactly, exactly. It might offer some protection. <laughs> um, so I thought cloth face masks were essentially the lambskin condom of the pandemic. Sure. Uh -huh. Well, wow, with the experience you had after having done the research for it, I can imagine uh, you would have gone out and got them. I remember sewing them in my in my kitchen. I was just sewing masks for everyone in the early part of the pandemic when you couldn't get them. You know, but yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a nutty experience. And when you look at everything that's going on, you know, that's being talked about on the TV and like, again, what is actually being honestly portrayed? What are we actually telling the public? Uh, and then, of course, that gets worse and worse and worse. And John, you know, I mean, to get back to my point, John is... At the very least, not bothered by this outcome of his I just want everybody to be honest presentation as though he is, you know, really trying to do good for the world. Um, 
But he is, you know, like clearly at, at the very least not bothered. Um, and at the very worst, like really actively enjoying it. Well, yes. Although the ice cream, I think, can also be a sign of the places where he is, um, as Neil you know, said to me, he's a very broken individual. And he yeah. is not, in the comic, there is more of a sense of lecherous, voyeuristic pleasure mm-hmm. on the part of John right. D. Whereas here, I just more get the feeling that he is, as perhaps was true of some really perverted individuals, that his sexuality mm-hmm. was not intact and it wasn't a healthy sexuality that could mm-hmm. express itself. Um, that said, who hasn't just taken out a massive tub of ice cream in, in times of stress and just said... <laughs> to self-comfort. I'm gonna and he does that. He gets that tub of ice cream while everyone's having sex, before exactly. the blood and the murder. Yes. Right? Uh, but he does not seem interested no. remotely in everybody having sex. So we there was that kind of lecherous feeling that was in the comics removed from this. So here we have like the comics were very horrifying. And this is also like a horrifying episode. But the changes that were made also kind of invite a um a humanity, you know, um and a, and there's some there's there's more space for and I think sometimes that can make it when everybody's terrible, you know, everybody's terrible, everybody's awful, there's no humanity in anyone, and we just see the terrible things they do to each other, that can be horrifying. But it also doesn't doesn't keep us connected with our own humanity as we're experiencing that horror. We can separate from it. But when we see the humanity within these characters, you know, like what it is within them that that needs connection and that needs and is vulnerable, I think that... Uh, that adds a flavor to this dish, pardon me for bringing in another metaphor, that really elevates it. Yes. I And I think that that is one of the differences that I see in, in the character of John D. In the comic, he is driven more by ambition. He wants to be understood to be the dream king. And yes. here he is motivated more by a philosophy. And we mm-hmm. have seen that you can have a philosophy that might, you know, theoretically be for the good. And that especially when you try to implement it in a sort of end justifies the means way can lead to mm-hmm. greater evil than just someone who's all just let me have some evil with a side order of evil. Exactly. <laughs> well, it does. You know, I mean, virtue, like I said, virtue taken to excess becomes vice. I believe, uh, I don't know who it was. I think it was like uh, Socrates or Plato or Aristotle. One of them said it. Um, but but in the end, I mean, that really is true. And it's one of the wonderful things to do in writing is to find somebody who who is chasing a virtue, mm. but does it to such an extreme that it ends up creating so much more harm than the original problem they had does. And especially when you talk about, you know, like lying, you know, like, you know, we have white lies that people tell, which are lies that are just out of politeness. And is that necessarily a bad thing? Are are there times when lying to people is the appropriate and kind um, and moral thing to do? And are there times when telling the truth, especially when we engage in what we like to term the brutal honesty, as though the honesty somehow makes up for the brutality, um, that, you know, that that brutal honesty like that is also cruel a lot of the times and unnecessary. And, you know, I... 
I was thinking about this a lot because it has always seemed to me since, mm-hmm. I don't know, the 80s, that telepathy without the ability to filter is absolutely the worst superpower, a superpower that right. would be the equivalent to, I know how to make pimples come out on my entire body. Uh, just mm-hmm. why would you ever want to use this superpower? And exactly. I think it's it's because we all have we all have unbidden thoughts and we all have, you know, so I think, I don't know that any true intimacy would be possible if you were privy to everyone's thought all the time. And I've been thinking about how much as you progress through life, you, you are able to read these micro signals a lot more. And sometimes it's harder to tune out. You may notice that, you know, mm-hmm. microsecond of boredom or irritation on a friend or intimate space. And, you know, it's, it's better not to see it. It's better not to hear it. And I, you know, I think that we, we can all buffer ourselves into greater intimacy at times by, by screening some of this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Well, and also by protecting each other's privacy, yeah. right? Like everybody has thoughts. Like you can't really control your thoughts. You can't control your emotions, right? It's your job to process them. You know, but in a moment, sometimes, you know, like you just have a thought or you have an emotion and then you've got to figure out where that goes. And I think that that there is something in the intimacy that is the choice to share, like the value in intimacy is the choice that I make to share this vulnerability with you, right? And that's what makes us intimate. If you can just read anybody's mind, they are not given that choice. That choice is taken away from them. And in reality, it is the choices that we make, all of them, um, that really, truly matter and say who we are, right? Those are the choices. But it's so funny that you should bring up the telepathy thing because now I got to bring it back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Let me just tell you this. All right. Um, So I am not a fan of defining people um, by... uh, by who they are related to, especially what is a woman who is related to a man. But, you know, Daisy Head, who plays Judy, is Anthony Stewart Head's daughter. And Anthony Stewart Head was Giles (laughs) on Buffy. And I love Giles so much. So when you talk about the telepathy thing, there was an episode of Buffy called Earshot in which Buffy, you know, got that telepathy and it ended up being, you know, a curse in the end. Um, But also there's a couple of, of themes within here that also kind of reflect some episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like there's an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called Lie to Me, um, in which, you know, we have a moment at the end where the kindness is expressed through a lie that uh, that Giles tells Buffy at her request, you know. Um, and then there's also an episode of Buffy in season six called Older and Far Away, where, um, you know, the Dawn, uh, the little sister character, wishes that people would just spend time with her. She gets that wish granted and then nobody can leave the house for a couple of days. And that, of course, ends up being a disaster. Um, So the moments when people were walking toward the door and then they had to stop and they couldn't go toward that door anymore. um, I was like, oh my God, it's older and far away. So all I have to say is that like, Neil wrote this before Buffy was even a twinkle in Joss Whedon's eye. Like, I totally get that. Like this came out, you know, earlier than that. Um, But at the same time, if Neil Gaiman was a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I would absolutely love that. Neil, if you're not and you haven't watched it, watch it. I have a podcast called Still Pretty. You can listen to that while you watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And if you don't also fall in love with Giles, um, I will be completely shocked. So that's all I have to say about that. But I was very excited to see uh, see Judy, his daughter. And it was just, it was really nice. I was, I was happy to see that. Well, what you're raising for me is where I really respond to fantasy. I've always said... Mm-hmm. I like my fantasy hard and my science fiction soft. 
because yep. both, both mm-hmm. of them sort of do the same thing, which is they take mm-hmm. psychological or emotional truths and they manifest them. The the yes, the more you know primitive one is I think in Harry Potter there is some bogwort. I can't remember what mm-hmm. it's called, a thing that suddenly yeah. becomes your worst fear and it, it, that's how it yes. protects itself. Mm-hmm. But I think that is what fantasy is there for at times and, mm-hmm. and occasionally science fiction to yeah. to create a what-if scenario in which these things become quite, quite real and manifest. Um, mm-hmm. So I, and speaking of which... <laughs> I don't know if this is a real segue or a make-believe segue, but I'm just going (laughs) to slide it on down to, so something happens in this episode that never, to my knowledge, happened in the comics. Um, Mm -hmm. And if I'm wrong, somebody, who's probably Neil, will call me up and tell me so very shortly when it will be too late to fix this, but oh, what the hell. (laughs) Okay, so I don't think Dream ever explicitly says in the comics, I am the king of dreams. And by dreams, I don't just mean the brain activity that happens when you're asleep. Uh, I also mean the aspirational dreams you have for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think about that that double meaning of dream, which makes sense. I mean, we mm-hmm. do. There's a reason why we call both a dream. One, mm-hmm. I dream of being a writer, or I dream of of you know, having a romance with this person. I dream of of proving myself. And and these are obviously distinct from the um dreams over which we have no control at night. But, right. <laughs> but there's a reason we have the same word for both. They are alternate realities which can feel very, very vivid to us, which can feel as right. emotionally uh anchoring or or upsetting as as anything that happens in the physical world. So I just thought it was interesting because it ties back to the previous episode where we're talking about mm-hmm. hope. And so it's it's the sense in which, yes, dream is, or Morpheus is the, the king of nightmares and dreams over which we have no control, but he is also the, the, the lord of the dreams that lo- that are located in a place of hope and lucidity for us. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's the king of stories, right? We get that right in the beginning of the comics. And that's absolutely true here. Like this is all born of our ability to imagine a future that is different from what we're experiencing now. And sometimes what we imagine in the in the situation where we're dreaming of something for ourselves, we have goals, we have things we want to accomplish, and we dream of that happening. Um, but you know, it also happens in our fears, you know, in our worries, like everything that we imagine as a possibility, when we imagine it, our body experiences it as real. Like when you're reading a, a novel or you're watching a TV show, or whatever, like you feel those emotions. You cry when somebody fake on a TV screen is sad, right? That's because you're actually having that experience. You're creating that experience. I think it was George R. R. Martin who said, um, and it was in one of the Game of Thrones books, that um, that a, a person or like a, a person who doesn't read has but one life and a person who reads has, you know, 10,000, right? And because you get to have all of these experiences through those dreams. So I think that like what Morpheus truly is, what he presides over is the realm of the imagination and all of its mm. lightness and darkness. Oh, gosh, I like that. And um, I think I read somewhere that if you want to develop 
the muscle of empathy, that reading fiction is the the primary yeah. way to do that. Absolutely. It's a and there is a there are studies that show that people who regularly read fiction um, have a greater, you know, sense of empathy. And I think that that is, you know, showing that this is a muscle that we can build, you know, um, and then like, I, you know, and I love that you bringing empathy into it, because of course, that's how we end this story. Like after this, you know, dream comes in, he has the conversation with john, um, he pulls john into the dreaming where he isn't where Morpheus is in control. Um, John starts to have a dream about his mother killing him, then realizes it's a dream. So he goes into lucid dreaming, right? Which is another very interesting idea. And there they are. And then John crushes Morpheus's ruby with the intent to kill, right? And in the end, he ends up in Morpheus's hand. And and Morpheus, the thing that I one of the thing that I really love is this moment where like John's like, "Are you going to kill me?" And Morpheus is like, eh, "That might, but you know, let's talk about it." And he goes through this whole reasoning, and he's like, "You received the ruby as a child. That was not your fault." Uh, it's not meant for humans to handle. That is also not your fault. What happened to you? You're kind of a victim here as well of circumstances beyond your control. So what he does is he shows him empathy and then places him back in the asylum, a place where he cannot harm anyone. And like that, you know, this, this idea, like I, I struggle with the idea of justice as vengeance, um, that what we need to do is prevent people from harming you know, from doing additional harm and do what we need to, to prevent them from doing additional harm, but to, to create a situation where they cannot harm anybody with a sense of empathy, with a sense of, of kindness and, um, and understanding and compassion. I love it. It's one of my favorite things about this whole comic. And again, this was in the original and it's here as well. Like we see a lot of empathy from Morpheus and I love it. Yes. Although, um, yeah, the only slight problem with this is that people are always breaking out of Arkham Asylum. It is just the worst that <laughs> that and whatever place they were keeping Batman in that movie where no one can escape except you, small child. Just exactly. We don't even watch it. Go on up. <laughs> I, uh, that is true. That is true. But I still think that the 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 very human, even though this comes from an endless, the very human yeah. impulse to see with compassion. Um, I think is something that we do tend to uh, to mute a lot in society. I, I think it's something that we can learn something from. And every time Morpheus, who has no compulsion, no need to engage in empathy or compassion, every time he does, that feels like a real human moment for me. And of course, that in contrast, you know, alongside all of this dark, dark horror, again, elevates the whole dish. So much so. And I was thinking, you know, how you teach story. I've, I've taught story and, you know, there's this old chestnut now where, you know, your antagonist should be kind of a dark mirror of your protagonist. And mm -hmm. usually, you know, you can do it in a very clumsy way. But here yeah. there is an elegance in that John D, who thinks he's the Sandman, the Lord of Dreams, possessor of the ruby. Now it's his mm -hmm. ruby. He looks more empathic than Morpheus in the beginning. He looks yeah. more caring. And yet what he really is lacking is, is, is a true empathy because when it becomes clear, you know, Bet is the one who confronts him and she says, mm -hmm. is this a better world? Now, this is a moment when 
self-reflection would say, you know what? I thought honesty was the best policy, but you're all very miserable and one of you is dead. So no, it's not a better world. And instead it's, it's, it's uh, a doubling down. And it mm-hmm. reminds me of these, you know, awful preachers where you say, you know, well, you promised me prosperity and I gave your church a bunch of money and now I'm miserable. You got to, mm-hmm. ref- you know, it's because you have self-doubt. If you got rid of that, then you'd be right. even just give us some more money. and Just um, give us some more money. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, I have to say, I think that that is, um, is such a great point to like end this segment on. And then we're going to come back with Lucianne's library where we're going to talk about themes. We're going to do a little behind the scenes. There may be light spoilers. You have been warned, everybody. Jack, roll the music. If you're enjoying Endless, a Sandman podcast, then you should know that it is only through our Patreon supporters that we are able to produce this content for you. So we'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash chipperish. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the chipperish patrons who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. Thank you to our power producers, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. All Chipperish supporters get access to the Chipperish Discord chat, where you can pop in, meet other Sandman fans, and chat with the Chipperish creators. And at $10 a month and up, you can even attend live tapings for some of our shows. Thank you to our intrepid editor, Jack Cram, whose time and skill is paid for through your support. If you'd like to support Endless and Chipperish Media, please visit patreon.com chipperish and support us today. All right, so here we are in Lucienne's library, which honestly is one of my like favorite parts because then I just get to sit and listen to you tell me all the things. So, uh, so what have you got for us on twenty four seven? I have things, and I have random things. So as I love it. Well, as you know, uh, I've been, I've been, you know, a little bit under the gun, and I was desperately prepping for the podcast mm-hmm. when I get a call from Neil. <laughs> And uh, he was saying he'd listen to um, the Shelley podcast. So he told me a wonderful story about Shelley. Do I have time for two? Yes, absolutely. So um, first of all, he said that he thought Shelley gave herself short shrift, that she made it sound as though she was just about the artwork, but that, you know, what he really valued is that she really would tell him how she connected and resonated with the characters that I, as an assistant editor, would talk more about plot, but you know, right. she really would talk about the characters as if they were people who impacted mm-hmm. on her. However, she was very good on the art and very detail oriented. And Neil said, and occasionally, you know, he, you know, he, she would call him up to say, Neil, Neil, there's a problem. Okay, on page <laughs> six, panel three, there's a shade of blue. I don't think it's the right. Just it, there's just you know a little, <laughs> tiny little bit more red in the. And Neil would say, I. I'm not there and I'm not looking at it. I trust you, Shelley, to correct that shade of blue. So, um, so I thought that I would, uh, I would get a, a, give, give a little shout out to Shelley and Neil and also to say that Shelley, I think I may have mentioned this in the comics, uh, episodes had this superpower with color. She could look at a color and call out the code. You know, this blue is composed of, you know, five <gasps> That's parts. That's talent. Yeah. Like yes. this is five parts, this mm-hmm. blue with the two dots of red. And, you know, they're, they're all these ratios. Oh, that's a brilliant talent. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, um, so that was one thing. And then I said, well, this mm-hmm. is great. I'm actually prepping for uh, 24-7. 
And he told me that uh, this was the second episode that was filmed right after the pilot. And, oh, wow. And COVID had a lot to do with it. So COVID sure. had uh, the world and especially Britain in a pretty severe mm-hmm. lockdown. I don't know if people know, you had to, my my relatives and friends in England said, you know, you had to justify how far you were walking your dog. You know, you would, wow. you would mm-hmm. walk your dog. You couldn't stop and linger. You know, it was, they were much stricter than the Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were in lockdown. So they built this set um, and they... They built it a little larger than usual, if I recall what Neil said properly, so that mm-hmm. people could maintain some distance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, everyone stayed on set. So when you're behind the scenes in the kitchen area between Bet and Marsh uh, and Lindy earlier on, everyone is still there. They all stayed together. They shot this sequentially uh-huh. to add to that claustrophobic feel. How neat. Yeah. So that was a cool thing to know that there was that COVID. That makes the bottle episode. And for those of you unfamiliar, bottle episode is basically an entire episode that takes place uh, either all entirely or mostly within one confined space. And you get all these characters interacting. Um, So what's fascinating about that is that it was a bottle episode, not just on screen, but apparently behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. And Mm -hmm. they tried hard. Obviously, people weren't jetting around in their usual mm-hmm. way of things. So they tried hard to cast all British. I believe the actress who plays mm-hmm. Bette and the uh, actor who plays Gary are Americans and everyone else mm-hmm. is British. Mm-hmm. And wow. uh, and is was that it? Was that everything else? Oh, and the last tidbit, uh, and yes. I am no longer working from notes, but just from my faulty memory, <laughs> uh, is that there were some uh, versions of this that really were hard to look at in terms of the horror content and Mm -hmm. that they deliberately cut it so that they didn't want people to look away. They didn't want people to not be able to stay with this. And so they, you Mm -hmm. know, they selected a version that is definitively horror and yet not unwatchable horror. I will tell you that as a, a very devout look awayer, <laughs> right? Um, this is this is what happens to me. I will watch something. I know something terrible is coming. I look away, but often, like especially if it's something that I'm reviewing, um, you know, I'll have like the headset on, right? I will look away, and then whatever the sound work is will make it even more horrifying <laughs> in my head than anything they would have done on screen. Um, but in this one, like I kept looking away, and then I was like, no, I'm reviewing. And when I'm reviewing, I stop, I go back, and I force myself to watch it because the look away instinct is just so strong in me. And when I went back and watched it, I was like, oh, okay. So they show it a little bit, but not a lot. And also the sound work... And I thank everybody behind the scenes uh, because the sound work like that, that people do on a lot of these, you know, horror things is amazing. It's powerful. It's wonderful. But for a look awayer, it makes it worse. Like it makes it so much worse because my imagination is worse than anything. Um, and, and one of the things that I kind of appreciated that they did is that they did excellent sound work here, but they moderated it. There wasn't all the the squishy kind of, there was a little bit of it. And I have to say that I think in the way that the humanity in this elevated the horror, something about not dialing the squish and viscera and Foley work up to 11 on this stuff. What is Foley work? 
Oh, Foley work is when, uh, you, you know, it's, it's sound designers will have the thing playing and then they'll be in a room that has like a melon and they'll hit the melon with a bat and that's somebody getting hit in the head with it, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, so they, they you know, grab like the, the seeds and the guts of a pumpkin and then squish it around and that's your Foley work. That's what gives you like the viscera like kind of thing, right? Um, so anyway, so like the people who were doing all of the sound design did an excellent job, but by not dialing it up as much as they could have. Um, I, like for me, as somebody who's very uncomfortable with all of that stuff, it actually made it easier for me to watch it. It made it easier for me to be able to kind of like lean in. And when I did, you know, finally, after rewinding like three times, force myself not to look away um, and saw what they had done, like it worked really well, you know, and I thought that it was, it, you know, the imagination will fill in so many gaps for you. That's why like a lot of times if you're, if you're filming something darker with horror, like the less you show, the better. X-Files, half of it was just completely lit by Mulder and Scully's flashlights. And it's what you don't see in the dark that your imagination takes over. And that, that makes the viewer lean in a little bit more. Um, and the thing is for a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us with horror, we are leaning away. We're backing away from it because it's just too much. So this allowed me to actually, you know, be present throughout the horrifying stuff and it sort of filled out the rest of the episode for me so that I could access the humanity when that came in and when there were subtle elements of humanity kind of running underneath everything even during the horrific moments um, and so I really like I appreciated the way that that was done I don't know if any if they were thinking of the lookawayers which of course is a term I have just coined, so feel free everybody to use it. I don't know if they were thinking about, you know, the portion of their of their viewers who might have that issue. Um, but for me, it really allowed me to lean in a little bit more into this episode than I felt like I was going to be able to, especially the first time I watched it, I looked away for like most of it. Uh, but it wasn't until I actually was able to watch it and look at it and see it and experience that with the sound and everything that I was like, oh, okay, I can do this, you know? Um, so yeah, I just I think that the the production work on the Sandman so far um, I've really, really liked it. I loved the the way they used the muted colors um, in this. I loved the way we had the subtlety of the storm raging in the background. Oh, the music. Um, yeah. I, I love the music. And we were talking about the music when John yes. D first comes in, which you looked up, which is Mozart. It's it's Mozart. It's from, uh, it's Cosa Minari from uh, The Marriage of Figaro. Which, so yes, you wanted to find out what it was. So I got an app that would listen to it and tell me. So I am yeah. not so familiar with classical music. I actually mm -hmm. uh, cheated my way through that uh, requirement in high school. I, mm -hmm. I made up uh, concerts I hadn't actually attended. <laughs> and uh yeah i actually even described like the hat of the person sitting in front of me and anyway um but but it sounds to me like that is meant to be a sort of happy tune so there's that mm -hmm. lovely irony of it is it's really yeah it's kind of nice that that we have a lot of like you know sweet and and salty sort of put together you know in this one space which is something that i really enjoy like i think that's very cool when we combine those those seemingly dissonant flavors and like mix them together there's something neat to be gotten from that oh oh speaking of which yes the actor who plays gary eating that french fry that first french fry yeah mhm mm i could feel his incredible pleasure at yeah that deep fried 
salty goodness. That was exactly a very well acted French fry moment. And then I had this is very stupid, but you know how they lose track of time, and so they they yeah. feel too full, and then they go and they order the next meal. That was its right. own mini horror. Like oh, it really oh. was, and especially for actors who, when they are filming something, have to eat the same thing over and over and over and over again. And that gets really gross after a while. Um, whenever I see an actor eat, like my empathy goes up because I know like behind the scenes how how terrible that can be. And often they have a bucket. You know, yeah. I'm just saying that they don't have to actually <laughs> They don't have to actually swallow everything. They can just be eating it and then they'll cut away and then they can get rid of it. Um, But yeah, that is a really like it's a difficult thing for actors to do that all day long. So as delicious as the food looked, um, and I'm sure it was actually delicious in real life, um, even then it's got to be so difficult to eat the same thing that much. That is the true diner horror. Yes, it is. The behind the scenes. There is also horror, which I really, I really love. Um, So yeah, I think that we've covered everything that I had in the notes. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't hit? I am positive there is something, but I don't know what it is. I will only know when we finished recording and I'll say, crap. But we'll do it next time. Oh, I time. wish I said that. <laughs> That'll be fine. Well, we'll pick it up later. All right. So I guess we're ready for what's your favorite part. Elisa, what is your favorite part of 24-7? Uh, well, in this episode, as in the comic, I think it's the moment when the three women become the fates, the three who are one, and they give the fortune. I, I have, wait, I have my comic here. <laughs> Let me see if I can yes. just, I, mm-hmm. this is the same lines. So at mm-hmm. first he says, um, tell me my future. And they say, you come from dust, you walk the dust, you go back to dust. And mm-hmm. in the comic, he just says again, tell me my future. But in the series, he says, that's everyone's future. Tell me my yeah. future. Mm-hmm. There is no future for you, John D. It's a future bounded by walls and guards and the sour smell of madness. And then the skein of your life is cut son of your mother. You have stolen some of the power of dreams. You will take all of it. You will crush out the dream lord's life in your hands, John D. And it's the, it's the fortune. This is how the fates will F you up. (laughs) They, you know, it's the fortune you think you want. You Mm -hmm. want to meet a tall, dark, handsome man? Mm-hmm. Gig is into hate, you know, so they're going to give you the fortune that you think you want. And mm-hmm. when it, it comes, they make Lucifer look like a truly nice supernatural entity. And I love that they did it telling him the truth, which is the honesty that he craved so hard. Right. I mean, that's that's the brilliance of what they do and how they just mess with you. Yeah, absolutely. And how about you? Oh, you know, I was looking at this and I'm like, ah, it's really tough. But I have to say, again, uh, once again, having the conversation about it has made me appreciate so much of this episode that I had difficulty accessing when I was watching it because it was it was really difficult for me. But I have to say, like, I think it's that moment with Dream where he doesn't kill John, where he he sees how all of this happened, that it wasn't John's fault, and then puts him in a space where hopefully... Like, you know, I realize that the doors at Arkham Asylum apparently always wide open for anybody who wants to escape. Uh, But we're hopefully he won't be able to harm anyone again. And there is something so beautiful and human in this compassion coming from an endless that I just I really love it. (laughs) 
If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, you don't have to pretend anymore. You can have what you want. We will be back next time with The Sound of Her Wings, Episode 6 of Netflix's The Sandman Season 1. Until then, can I get you a cup of coffee while we wait for our dreams to come true?